Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is Tom Salemi, listening to episode 129. To start, I'd like to apologize for not producing a podcast last week. I won't get into the details, but we had several interviews fall through. And my backup plan needed a backup plan. So uh, thanks for your patience, and I hope you're understanding. We will talk today with Ben Sai, a partner at Invis Opportunities Funds. Invis is a significant investor in MedTech, but it's maintained a, a pretty low profile for most of its three decades. I connected with Ben through one of his recent investments in a biopharma called OysterPoint. And uh, in this podcast, we'll talk about Ben's career, about Invis's MedTech strategy, and really why they're looking to come out from under the covers now. But first, I want to remind you that the MedTech conference is happening on May 30th in Minneapolis. We've got a jam-packed agenda, including a keynote interview led by yours truly, and I'm going to need your help with this one, so more on that later. So please go to medtechconference.com for more details. We should have the site updated to reflect the new job of one of our speakers, Keith Grossman, who this week was named CEO and President of Nevro. So Keith returns to the MedTech Conference stage to talk about building a billion-dollar MedTech business. So uh, again, go to medtechconference.com to check out the agenda. Finally, this is an important note. If you're planning to attend the event, you should register before March 31st or you're you're just giving up $300 because our discounted rate expires on March 31st. So register before the 31st and you'll save $300. And don't forget to use your MedTech Talk code and you register before March 31st, you'll save an additional $200. So that's a $500 savings off the full price of registration. So that's certainly worth doing. Now let's get into this week's podcast. In a phone call, Ben Sai shared his and Invis's story. I come from a family of doctors, and so I'm sort of the black sheep in the family from having not completed um, my pre-med training and actually become a doctor. So, um, but I, I kind of quite passionate about healthcare, just, you know, did thought that I'd be um, better at sort of working on projects that could help a lot of patients at the same time, as opposed to sort of one at a time, uh, which is the traditional role of, a, of a, an MD. So from that standpoint, I, um, after my undergrad, I went and joined a consulting firm uh, called the Monitor Group that uh, was founded by some HBS professors and spent most of my time doing consulting to the life sciences industry. And did you know at that point uh, that you wanted to get into investing? And, and how hard was that that move uh, off the uh, the MD track? Was that a difficult decision? No, I, I don't think so. It was just it was just something I didn't I didn't know as much about because I didn't have that context from you know from family or friends. But um, I was fortunate that you know I had a, a professor uh, in undergrad at USC where I went uh, who introduced me to the firm. So I kind of walked in to my interview and not knowing what consulting was, and it was clearly going to be a good fit after I spent some time there and joined there uh, after I graduated. So uh, I was, you know, pretty seamless from that standpoint, and uh, uh, really enjoyed it. And then, as it relates to going into investing, that again was not something that was on my radar screen at the time. I was actually um, went to uh, to business school with the intent of becoming a, a life sciences entrepreneur. And how did that uh, how did that end up leading you to uh, to Invis? Well, um, I guess I spent uh, my my sort of single summer internship um, 
while in business school at a local biotech company. It's now public, like Concert Pharmaceuticals. Really great people, very seasoned uh, biotech team. But it became quite clear to me that you know I hadn't retained enough from my pre-med training to actually be, I think, qualified to be a CEO of a preclinical biotech company. So then I just shifted my attention in my second year uh, towards um, towards medtech. And again, you know, a little bit like how I ended up um, in consulting in the first place. I am um, a friend of mine from business school pointed me in the direction of Invis, which is sort of this below, below the radar um, investing firm that uh, is entirely comprised of former management consultants. And so she had some, you know, she knew my background and she knew one of my partners, my now partners from um, having gone to undergrad together and told me to check it out. And again, it was immediately obvious that it was going to be a great fit. So I ended up, you know, at Invis and that was 11 years ago. A little work on the Google machine reveals that uh, Invis actually is uh, credited with one of the larger private equity wins recorded with an early investment in Weight Watchers. According to one report, Invis made more than 23x on the investment with an IRR of over 93%. In talking with Ben and reading releases and searching PitchBook, I see that Invis really has a sizable medtech portfolio. And they include uh, exits from Oris, which of course was acquired by J&J last month. And we'll talk with Ashley McAvoy about that at the MedTech conference. She's going to be another keynote guest. Invis also had a stake in Cardiac and Aquasis and uh, actually maintains an investment in Novacure. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. So now let's hear a bit more about Invis from Ben. The story of Invis um, is that uh, our two founders who still run the firm uh, today were sort of young post-MBA consultants at the Boston Consulting Group, uh, advising um, a family-owned business in Europe, uh, a sugar business, in fact. And they um, had gotten to know this company as as a client, and eventually the shareholders um, provided some seed capital um, for Invis. And, you know, we uh, came came to the U.S., began making uh, private equity investments, and then you know, that was 1985, so 34 years later, we haven't, we still haven't raised outside money. It's just been through uh, compounding the capital from that original family. Now, are you part of a, a segment of Invis? I, I see Invis Financial Advisors and uh, Invis Opportunities. Uh, yes. What, can you please uh, give me some, some uh, details on those two elements of Invis? Yeah, so probably easiest is sort of, again, to pick it up from, from the, the beginning. So again, in, Invis is basically an evergreen fund um, that um, has a single family as, as a sort of sole capital provider and has been sort of investing and reinvesting that capital base um, over the past 34 years. Um, so along the way, some adjacent strategies were added to the, the core business of, of, you know, being a controlling shareholder or kind of the main investor alongside um, the management team or founders of a company. And the first one that was added um, is with the excess cash of Invis, it's invested in, in third-party hedge funds. Um, and then that was in the mid-90s. And then in the early 2000s, uh, our own direct proprietary public equity strategy was added, which actually is also uh, uh, very active in life sciences today. Actually, probably the, the majority of, of that team and the capital there today is invested in biotech. And then um, 
in this opportunity, we're now calling this opportunities, uh, was launched right around the time that I joined 11 years ago to really focus on um, non-control investments or investments that are done typically earlier stage, typically uh, in companies that have a syndicate of investors that support it. You know, so that might be a venture stage company or growth stage company um, or syndicated control investment. Um, and so we've been doing that. You know, again, I and one of the uh, co-founders of Invis uh, started launching that strategy in earnest in 2008. And so, um, so Invis opportunities plus our fund of hedge funds are the two arms of Invis that are collectively called Invis Financial Advisors. And probably the uh, distinction there is that we work with other investors as part of our strategy, um, whereas um, the, uh, the other two arms, which are the sort of more control-oriented uh, private equity strategy, as well as our proprietary public equity strategies, are more sort of, uh, company-facing. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you operate more as a traditional VC would? Um, closer to that, yes. Although we, think, we, we do think there are some some um, advantages of our structure and some of our heritage as investors that brings a, a complementary dimension to what VCs do, which you know they do a lot of things that we don't do. In fact, so you know, we think it is complementary. What are what are some of those benefits? I imagine the you don't have a ten year right. um, partnership fund, so you don't have to worry about those timelines. Yes, correct. So I think that because you know uh, everyone on the team. So um, two of our four partners, you know, spent the first half or more of their career doing control investments. And from that standpoint, you know, um, we we don't mind being the control shareholders. We could, you know, be an acquirer of of um, you know early investors who need to sell. That's not something we're quite comfortable with. Um, but more, more typically, we're investing in companies that the the insiders are not are not looking to sell. They want to hold. And, and so when we come in and invest, uh, we have that flexibility of of holding our investments for as long as you know we think it makes sense um so we you know literally when we sell an investment we um we literally have to find something else to do with the money given our structure and so from that standpoint we'd rather hold companies that we believe in that we think have more runway as opposed to you know selling them early and um taking the gain and sort of raising more money i think we don't we don't have to do that so that's that's quite nice and it allows us to really align um, at least the role that we play as part of a group towards, you know, orienting the company towards making decisions that will pay off over the long term, which in fact we believe also pays off over the short term. Because um, even if the most likely outcome for an invest uh, for a, a medtech investment might be being acquired by a strategic that already has, you know, established sales and marketing distribution within its um, within a, a given market, uh, we think that building the business to run it indefinitely um, provides you a much stronger, you know, frankly, negotiating position when you're talking with a potential acquirer versus if you, you know, only take it so far. And then you know, at that point, whoever shows up and is willing to pay the highest price is, is probably going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. So do you find that puts you more in line with management's uh, objectives than perhaps other venture investors or do other venture investors see the wisdom in, in perhaps waiting or uh, yeah, I think it's hard to generalize. Obviously, venture investors who invest out of out of traditional fund structures that do have, um, you know, uh, promises they've made to their limited partners that require um, them to provide liquidity over a certain time horizon. That doesn't always line up with a, a company um, in, in in markets that that require a little bit more time and patience to sort of reach their full potential. Um, you know, at the same time, I think there are plenty of venture investors out there that have seen 
the success that comes with with you know kind of uh, holding your winners for longer, and they have investors that that you know trust them and allow them to to do that. And so you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't overgeneralize, but in some cases, yes, I think that, that we have found that um, being able to just not have a separate agenda um, with us and our investor uh, allows us to you know really focus our investment thesis around. What management team thinks is you know, what, what, how far we should take it, you know, which isn't isn't always to build a independent company, but but it may, it may be longer than some of their early investors may be able to hold based on sort of structural constraints. Interesting. And in your charter, is it uh, just to generate returns from investments, or are you charged with creating companies that perhaps the larger invest funds might someday invest in? Are you a feeder fund? Yeah. So. You know, I think the latter scenario is our ideal, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think the reality is that if we do our job, um, typically um, there is a a better buyer for a company than Invest because we 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 are a financial investor ultimately. We think we're very strategic in how we invest, and I have to talk about that. But you know literally a strategic that has, you know, existing infrastructure. If you run a cash flow model, it's worth more to them because they have synergy than we do than to us. Right. And so um, I think what we, you know, where I think that will probably happen more is in a circumstance where, um, you know, there's a relatively limited buyer universe and they're sidelined for some reason. And in that instance, I think we could be sort of a backstop um, investor and we have offered to buy out. Um, some early investors as part of a alternative to selling for too little, but, but in each of those instances today, you know, the, uh, eventually the, um, there was another buyer out there that was willing to pay what we thought it was worth. Where does Ben and Invis see MedTech opportunities going forward? We'll find out right after this. All right. Well, remember at the top of the podcast, when I said I needed your help, here is the deal. As you all know, I'll be interviewing Kevin Lobo of Stryker at the upcoming MedTech conference. And uh, I've got a long list of questions. I can ask questions all day long. But I was wondering if you had any questions for Kevin Lobo. If you do, please send them to me. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Or you can email me. My email is tom at healthogy.com. That's the word health. Followed by the letters E-G-Y dot com. If I use your question, I'll make sure I give you credit during the interview at the MedTech conference. So if you're at the conference, it'd be a nice little icebreaker for you to connect with Kevin or really anyone in the room. So please do send your questions to me again on Twitter at MedTechTom or email me tom at healthogy.com. And if you haven't registered, don't forget to do so before March 31st and to use that MedTech Talk code. And now let's get back to this MedTech Talk podcast. Where does MedTech fit into your strategy? What are the qualities of the companies that you'd like to invest in? Intellectually honest, it's probably that I, I was personally interested in MedTech coming out of business school. And we had, you know, an open mandate to sort of make investments that didn't sort of fit the traditional in this model where, you know, we're, we're more the kind of the controlling shareholder and just started networking and met, you know, had the good fortune of meeting some, some people that have been quite influential in um, my own investments. Um, and, you know, I think with success begets more and more success. So it just sort of has compounded on itself. So, um, so I think that, you know, in terms of how Medtech fits into our broader strategy, 
I'd say number one, we do like to, I think our, our heritage is, is partnering with um, management teams to build you know, generational companies, the companies that are gonna be around for a long time. And so I think we do tend to, um, um, you know, when we have the, the opportunity to work with, with sort of some of the best uh, management teams out there, then, you know, they do tend to want to work with us again. And they do tend to sort of, you know, send us ideas they are passionate about, even if they're not running it themselves. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's very helpful for us. So I think that we, A, I think from that standpoint, even though it may not be um, just us and management, I think sort of the orientation around being a long-term partner to management is still, I think, I think central to our strategy in, uh, at, at, in this opportunity. Um, I think that, uh, number two, I'd say that we um, don't have any pressure to invest money in any particular sector at any particular stage um, because of our fund structure. And so for that reason, in markets that are, um, in private markets that are, um, are uh, I don't know, uh, kind of in a period of, 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 of euphoria with a lot of capital chasing a relatively, you know, more limited set of, of high quality investment opportunities. In our view, um, you know, we tend not to be that competitive, you know, frankly. And so I think from that standpoint, we tend to, you know, as, as a byproduct of our, of our, you know, just lack of, of need to invest as well as our, our requirement to do real work before we make an investment, we don't sort of chase, you know, companies and, and, and make investment decisions within two weeks based on good dealings, you know, um, that tends to just lead us to invest in markets that have a little bit less competition for some reason, whether it be in an emerging market that has less institutional investors or uh, a space like MedTech, which has been uh, a little bit, um, you know, I think uh, a little bit less in favor um, than it was frankly when I was in, when I was in school from like uh, 06 to 08, as well as relative to biotech for healthcare focused funds or relative to uh, software or um, or internet companies in the context of generalist venture funds. So I think I think we've we've naturally just gravitated towards opportunities where you know we can we can kind of do that real work and we can pay you know a fair price for a good company. Um, we we don't typically you know we we have done a number of turnarounds over the course of Invis's you know three decade history in other markets. We generally don't do that in a minority investment context when we're not the controlling shareholders because it's um it's hard to Sort of make some of the tough decisions that we find you need to make in those circumstances. So we're looking to invest in uh, good companies that are doing things that are, you know, transformational, that are, that are uh, important innovations, that are not sort of me too. And then since we're, you know, since our strategy is to not be the controlling shareholders, we're generally looking to, um, you know, back the teams in place and, you know, pay a fair price for a good company as opposed to, you know, trying to turn it around, replace management, uh, et cetera, at least on day one. So, but I see in the, in the case like a vascular dynamics, which was I think done back in 2012, you were a series A investor. Uh, do you right. invest in, in two people with an idea, that kind of early stage deal, or is this a, do you only invest in companies that have a mailing address and headquarters and already some sort of infrastructure in place? We've done a bit of like all, all of the above. I think it would be quite unusual for us to be yeah, investing in, you know, a guy and an idea um, simply because, you know, I'd say we're typically not, you know, we're, we're not, kind of early stage investment venture capitalist as a strategy. And so from that standpoint, it wouldn't really make sense for people to approach us about that. And, um, and so, but we have done that. And when we have done it, it's typically been 
when we knew the people from a prior investment, you know, where we kind of be a day one investor. And, and we, we do ultimately view our, our investments as primarily about the people. Um, and it just, it's a matter of, you know, okay, from that standpoint, you know, the longer we're doing this, the, the wider our universe of people that will know us and hopefully will approach us to be there for the first money. And so, but, you know, I think more typically if we're just out, you know, in the world meeting companies um, and we don't have a sort of a strong ingoing pers- uh, perspective about the team, you know, again, it, it is hard to tell unless you really work together side by side, then we'll look for, you know, we'll look for some data, we'll generally look for um, things that we think have a, a reasonably good chance of working and where that falls on the spectrum does depend on the nature of, of the, um, the underlying technology, right? If it's a sort of a totally new mechanism of action um, in a biotech context, we probably will want some clinical data. If it's something that actually is, you know, a more of a kind of a mechanical fix for uh, with a medtech solution, we actually have done preclinical investments and, um, you know, been successful in that context as well. Right. And I know you're short on time, so I want to hit upon some of your uh, recent successes. I know you were an investor in Aquasis and uh, you're an investor in Oris, which, of course, just got acquired by J&J. And I think it's the largest medtech M&A, a private company, uh, I think that's been recorded. So how did you get involved? Let's talk about Oris. Uh, how did you come to get involved with that? And uh, I'm guessing this isn't a, a typical Invis deal, but I'm sure you'd like it to be. So we invested in 2017. Uh, and the way we met the company was, again, I think very much aligned with what I had been saying about sort of how we source in general, right? So one of uh, a CEO, you know, one of the best CEOs in the industry, we reviewed Doug Gottschall from Hardware. Um, he had just taken on, uh, after Hardware had been acquired by Medtronic, he had looked at a number of different things. We had tried to convince him to do a couple of things with us, but ultimately um, landed at Shockwave, which just went public very successfully. And uh, one of his uh, directors um, is Fred Mall, so another kind of uh, luminary of the medtech world and uh, you know, for founding CEO of Intuitive, which is you know, probably the most valuable sort of single, um, single market medtech company, not, an, not a consolidator. And um, you know, he was kind enough to introduce us to Fred in the context of a financing that Fred was pulling together at that point. Oris was still you know, very secretive, um, didn't have a website, didn't very little you could find out. Which you sort of poured through IP and um, went there and was immediately, I think it was, it stood out in terms of the, the size of the opportunity it was going after. You know, I think from that standpoint, um, you know, there's a handful of things in our portfolio that it just have, you know, uh, uh, long-term potential of becoming, you know, a 10 or $100 billion company, which, you know, some companies just don't have that potential because of the nature of, of, of the market they're going after, the product they developed. And so this one definitely fit that criteria. And, you know, it's um, frankly, and we've only been involved for less than two years, I believe, or around two years. And so for us, it's a little bit, you know, bittersweet because it's a great outcome for everyone involved. And I think the, the technology will, will have a good home inside of J&J. But at the same time, like for us, this is just the first chapter of what we, you know, we're underwriting the investment to. So um, I'm guessing you weren't, you weren't arguing against this deal, though. Uh, you know, we typically will, will go with what, what management <laughs> is best, you know? Um, and so, uh, it is a big, sort of a, a big boy game, I'd say. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the other company that, you know, again, I, I sort of feel had a similar underwriting case is Novacure. 
where we also invested at you know what notionally would be a, a uh, the entry price was was would it be like a very good outcome in, in exit price in, in his in most med tech companies. Um, so we invested in a sub billion dollar valuation, and you know today it trades at around four or five billion dollars, and we haven't sold a share. All right. Well, just to be clear, Invis invested when Novacure was valued at seven hundred million dollars. Today, at the recording of this podcast, I checked myself. It's valued at four point seven billion. And Ben says that we think it'll be worth a lot more than that. So Invis is clearly building a name in MedTech. It has built a name in MedTech. So I asked Ben how folks can connect with him and why the company is coming out into the open now. Let's listen. Yeah, well, because we have been so quiet, you know, historically and, you know, even to the point where, you know, in press releases announcing financing, like we're unnamed, um, we um, have historically relied, you know, really entirely on referral. There have been a handful of instances where we develop um, a thesis about a market and then we'll start you know, cold calling uh, companies, you know, in space. Um, but, but generally speaking, we, we start with um, a qualified referral from someone that we trust. And it, it's just, you know, it's, I mean, not dissimilar than to most where, um, because, you know, although most of, um, the boards that I've sat on are are in this market. I also, you know, I wear other hats. I also lead sort of fintech investments for my firm, and um, I also, you know, have been involved in our other activities that span from software to, you know, cell phone towers in the emerging markets to you, kind of you name it. And from that standpoint, it's really more of a like a time issue. You know, I, I think that um, for for us to be able to prioritize the sort of universe of things that we could do at any point in time, it's very helpful to have you know, a filter, right? And a filter being someone that, um, you know, all they do is, you know, either operate or invest in a given market. And if we sort of do a good job of building trust with that person, you know, hopefully they'll send us their best idea. And what is driving your desire to, to start including your name in press releases and getting the Invis name out there? Well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't lost on us at the handful of times where it sort of got into press releases without, you know, us approving it in advance or if it felt, the company felt it was very important, you know, um, strategically to, to be able to announce it, you know, we, we weren't completely inflexible and that, you know, we ended up seeing ideas that, you know, were relevant to that original one. And, and some of those ultimately led to at least relationships that led to a good investment in the future. Right. And so, um, um, yeah, so I guess, you know, in a, for example, we, um, on the biotech side had invested in a company called Kythera, um, that was ultimately sold to Allergan with a great team from Amgen and uh, one of their investment bankers. I, we found them sort of on our own. Um, Amgen was a client of mine at Monitor, and I sort of had a new key to see of Kythera by reputation. And before he left, and saw him at JP Morgan and, and at the conference and, and approached him afterwards. So one of their bankers, um, you know, Leering, which is you know again a great a great uh, boutique in our space. Um, then subsequently introduced us to another idea in the dermatology space, which ultimately wasn't a fit, but their founding investors ultimately were the founding investors of Aquasis, right? Um, which is one of our favorite companies, um, also acquired by Allergan around the same time. And so, you know, so from that standpoint, I think that people being aware of some of the things that we're doing and just getting our name out there a little bit is, is helpful. I mean, again, that I don't see us, um, you know, going as to the lengths in terms of, of, of trying to solicit 
press coverage and doing podcasts like you, et cetera, anytime soon. But um, we think we can open it up a little bit. Well, you got, you got this one. This is a good start. So uh, we hope we hope this will lead to some uh, new opportunities for you. Thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the MedTech Talk podcast. Again, really sorry about last week. We will do better going forward. I promise. Please let me know how we're doing other than the little gaffe. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter again at MedTechTom. You can email me, Tom at HealthEG.com. That's the word health, followed by the letter E-G-Y. The letter is E-G-Y.com. HealthEG is the producer of this podcast and the MedTech Conference, which is happening on, that's right, May 29th and May 30th. If you're coming, don't forget to attend our May 29th opening reception. That's open to all attendees. You'll have an opportunity to get an early start on networking. And uh, we'll be kicking off that first day with a couple of workshops led by a few of our great partners and sponsors. So please stay tuned. We'll have details on that. Finally, please, please, please don't forget the discount rate is expiring on March 31st. Use it. Save yourself some money and use the MedTech Talk code too. It's going to save you $500 if you, if you register before March 31st and you use the MedTech Talk code. Man, you will uh, cover a couple of nights at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. So Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week. I promise we'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the MedTech Talk podcast.